The Heartbeat of the Wild, a new book. That's our textination. And joining us is author David Quammen. Hi, David. Hi, Fred. Good to be with you today. Great to meet you. And you are a wonderful writer on a range of subjects, science, nature, and more. Even gave us some advance warning about the potential for a pandemic. Your new book is titled The Heartbeat of the Wild, Dispatches from Landscapes of Wonder, Peril, and Hope. This book is a collection, really, I think, of, of stories from your assignments for National Geographic. Take us into it. Well, it is, it is based upon 20 years of assignments for National Geographic, going to wild places and, and, uh, and writing about wildlife and, and the, the landscapes in which they live. But uh, it's more than a co collection because I worked hard to knit these pieces together, um, to, to uh, update the reporting, to produce connective tissue, to tell the stories of how these uh, assignments worked and how one led to another, and then with a forward and an afterward to give an overview. I tried to get to the essence of um, of what it is about these places that makes them very special, makes them wild, and what it means for a place to be wild, and uh, and what it means for a wild place to have a heartbeat, um, something that is like an emergent property, almost like a soul that uh, distinguishes these places from um, a tiger in a zoo or a piranha in a, an aquarium. Um, those are wild creatures, but that's not wildness when you put them behind bars or in an aquarium. You need the processes. You need the interconnection. You need the diversity. So that's what I'm trying to get at. It's really the culmination of 40 years of going to wild places and writing about them, uh, the last 20 of which were for National Geographic magazine. And uh, you're bringing the stories back to life uh, for the reader and for yourself, as you point out, uh, starting with, uh, I guess, explorer Mike Fay, what he dubbed the mega transect. Tell us about that. That's right. That was the beginning of my career with National Geographic. I'd been writing about wild places, as I said, for about 20 years at that point. And then in 1999, I got a call from an editor at National Geographic who said, we have a big project. We are going to sponsor an epic expedition across the last great remaining forests of Central Africa in the Republic of Congo and Gabon, this crazed but brilliant driven uh, ecologist explorer named Mike Fay is going to walk 2,000 miles on a zigzag line uh, through the thickest parts of these forests, staying away from trails, away from roads, away from villages, in order to survey the, um, the biological diversity where it is greatest, so that uh, it'll be known, they explained to me, which places are most precious, most diverse, most rich that need to be preserved and which places um, can be triaged, can be sacrificed uh, if they have to be. And so he walked for 456 days on this trek. And I walked over the course of four different sections. I walked about a mere 53 days with him. Uh, we wore sandals and river shorts. We crossed swamps. We crossed blackwater streams. We slept in little tents on the ground. We ate around a campfire out of a common bowl. Uh, myself, he, uh, his crew of Gabonese um, 
or Congolese men, depending on which country we were in, uh, and a photographer named Nick Nichols, a great National Geographic photographer. And so we documented this, this expedition in three stories in National Geographic, and that became known as the mega transect. Mega as in huge, transect as in a biological survey um, hike. You might call it, I suppose, the, the mother of all biological survey hikes. Um, so that was the beginning of my my decades with National Geographic and got off to a, a challenging but very satisfying start. And the, these treks, you, you call them challenging, but most people would look at it and say, there's no trail and you're going through jungle. I mean, it, it sounds dangerous. It sounds uh, like something that might scare a lot of people away, but your your mission is to convey to the rest of us, I guess, what uh, that's right. what is going on. That's right. This was not for everybody, but I learned after just about the first three days that the way to live and travel in the Congolese forest like this is to do what Mike Fay had learned to do, which is to keep it simple, get rid of your long pants, get rid of your hiking boots. He would even get rid of his shirt. We walked in river sandals and river shorts. Um, I learned quickly that it's easier to keep your skin clean and dry than it is to keep any sort of you know, high-tech material, pants or long sleeve shirts, clean and dry. Uh, we would work up a sweat walking through the mud and the sand and the blackwater streams. And then we would camp at night, if at all possible, near some sort of a tiny little clear stream. And I would go, and, and I learned this from Faye too, I would wash every night. I would strip down, wash in this little stream, no matter how tiny it was, put my shorts and my river sandals back on, dry off in front of the campfire, climb into my tent clean and dry, zip it closed, um, wake up at 4.30 in the morning, write my journal, and then uh, duct tape over the sores on my feet, put my sandals back on, and be ready to walk again. And you taught that technique to Jane Goodall. Tell us about that. <laughs> I did teach that technique to Jane Goodall. We went in, this was after the mega transect, um, there was one very special place that Faye had walked through on the mega transect called the Gualogo Triangle in the Republic of the Congo, an area that was not yet preserved as part of a national park, but deserved to be because it had such deep remote forests that there were chimpanzees that were not afraid of humans, chimpanzees that would come down and follow us, um, curious about us and, and spend their night uh, in the trees near our camp. Um, and the only chimpanzees that uh, are curious about humans are chimpanzees that has, have essentially never been in contact with humans because they are hunted in these Central African forests. And so uh, we took Jane Goodall back into that area a couple of years later, bringing the spotlight of her international fame to bear on the effort to preserve that particular um, patch of land. And we walked in 12 kilometers, uh, the photographer, Mike Fay and I, and Jane, 12 kilometers through the swamp and the forest um, to get her to this remote place. She was wearing a cheap pair of, of market plastic market sandals and her feet were torn up by the time we got to the camp. She was 68 at the time. She said, boy, you guys are trying to kill me. I haven't walked this hard in 10 years. Uh, and then she she called me David Q. She said, David, there was another David who was a scientist in there, Dave Morgan. And she said, David Q, what's this 
what's this technique that you have of duct taping the sores on your feet so that you can function in the forest each day? So I showed her how to do that. I duct taped her feet and uh, and then I shared my roll of duct tape with her. And after the first day, she had the knack of it and she used it and she functioned with her torn up bloody feet for the for the week that we spent in there following these chimpanzees. Jane Goodall is famous around the world for the inspiration that she gives and the work she has done to conserve um, wild forests and to protect chimpanzees. But she's also darn good company around a campfire. Um, and uh, especially if there's a good bottle of single malt scotch to help warm the soul. Jane is good company. And one of the things that she teaches us, I guess, is that uh, the chimps and, and other creatures, I suppose, are individuals. And the mind, our mindset has to be that they are as we are, individuals. That's right. That's right. I, I asked Jane while we were in there, um, studying chimps over decades, she got to know the individuals at her study site. Gombe, the Gombe Stream Reserve, David Graybeard, and Flo, and the others that are famous in her books. And I asked her, what's the difference between preserving populations of wild animals and concern for individuals, individual special wild animals? And she told me, well, populations are made up of individuals. I make no distinction. She knew the chimpanzees that she studied essentially as people. They were they were persons to her, and she cared about them individually. And Jane uh, has always been inspirational to me because um, she manages to carry the torch of hope through some very dark nights. Uh, and if Jane can remain hopeful with what she has seen and all the efforts that she has made, then my feeling is that we have a duty to remain hopeful and keep fighting to preserve these wild places. So when you look back, you know, at, at these stories and, and refresh them, um, and that trying to maintain this, this feeling of hope, um, what goes through your mind? I mean, it, are we not making the progress that we should be? I, I think I know the answer to that. Well, we have 8 billion hungry humans on this planet, Eight billion and there has never been a population of large-bodied mammals on this planet as abundant as we are now we have brains we have ingenuity we have technology we consume a large portion of everything this planet produces but still um, we have imagination we have hearts we are capable of caring about wild places so you can say that, well, humans are the problem, human hungers are the problem, but humans are the only solution too. And I tell some stories in this book, I write about some places and some people that deliver vision and deliver hope of what still can be done in the 21st century to preserve wild places, such as Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, a place that was war-torn, and virtually destroyed and has been restored through the work of the, the people of Mozambique, some wonderful Mozambican scientists, and an American named Greg Carr, who has financed the effort and steered it over the last 20 years. So stories like that 
um, can give a person hope, give a, a person vision of what can be done despite all the 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 gloomy statistics that you that you hear about each day. And I suppose uh, the role of technology here, I mean, it certainly helps with the storytelling and uh, and the conversations like we're having now. Um, oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I tend to be a low-tech fellow. Um, when I walk through a tropical jungle like the Congo, I carry a Ziploc bag with a little notebook and a ballpoint pen inside. But Mike Fay, when I walked with him, was very tech savvy, carrying video cameras and GPS and recording data points, uh, gathering all of this information in digital form about what was still wild in which places on this great trek that he was on. Uh, and, uh, and the photographers that I've worked with, uh, Nick Nichols on that um, expedition and a number of others, um, they, of course, have become more and more technologically astute. You want to see gearheads, then go to the labs at the National Geographic Society and see the toys that they are designing for photographers to do their work. Um, drones and drop cameras that you can lower into the ocean and uh, 360 degree cameras and all sorts of things that are way above my head. But uh, it's it's highly technological now to bring a story like this into the pages of National Geographic magazine. Well, David, congratulations. Uh, the, the book again is The Heartbeat of the Wild Dispatches from Landscapes of Wonder, Peril and Hope. And thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much, Fred. I appreciate your interest. <laughs>